This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Absolutely delighted to be joined on Football CFB by a man who was a very good footballer and he's been highly regarded as a manager as well. Lee Clark played for Newcastle United. He also crossed that derby and, and played for Sunderland, as I'm sure we'll come to. He, he played at Fulham as well. 11 caps for the English under-21 side. Managed in England with Huddersfield, Birmingham, Blackpool, Bury uh, and a few others. Managed in Scotland with Kilmarnock and is now managing in African football, something that I'm, I'm excited to ask him about. Lee, first of all, how are you? I'm very good, thanks, Callum. Delighted to be on the show and... Uh... Yeah, um, looking forward to our conversation. The, the first question I've got for you, and I know you've had this question so much over the last few weeks, but you've swapped North East English football for North East African football. How did the move come about and how excited are you for such a unique challenge? It is. It's a fantastic challenge. And it's, uh, as you rightly said, I've swapped the banks of the Tyne for the banks of the Nile. My hotel here looks out under the River Nile. So... <clears throat> a little bit of history and uh, in there. So, yeah, listen, I've always been a coach who's considered and wanted to do some overseas coaching. I had an opportunity a couple of years ago uh, in Europe, but uh, I had to turn that down because um, my father was uh, quite ill at the time and I didn't want to go overseas at that moment in time and, you know, have to, you know, get some bad news and, try and rush, find a way back to, to, to him quickly. So I decided that that was too important. So I had to let that move go by. Um, and then obviously, you know, this opportunity arose a few weeks ago. I had the call. Would I be interested? Looked up the club, Almerique, and uh, seeing that it was one of the biggest clubs in Africa, huge fan base when, when fans are allowed back in after the COVID and uh, compete in the African Champions League and the Arab Champions League as well as obviously competing with our big rivals, Hilal, for the for the championship. So all those things, I thought, why not? Let's experience something different, coaching in a different uh, continent, coaching different mentality of players, um, and obviously experiencing a different lifestyle. Absolutely. And, and in terms of this new experience how much will you draw on your past experiences as a coach both in England and in Scotland because you, you've managed some really big clubs of course you always you learn at some of the, the every club you've been at there's been you know days where things haven't gone so well and days when they've gone terrifically well and you, you pick up experiences from all those and you you, you try to uh, use even the good and the bad uh, for, for yourself going forward you know the bad you, you can see the warning signs of of, of what could happen and you, you try and stop those you know from happening again so and you've experienced them before so if they were to come you know how to possibly handle them a bit differently um, so yeah the, you know 
listen, I've come in. The group of players have been absolutely fantastic. We're, I mean, we've got a big Champions League game on Saturday against Al Ali, the big Egyptian powerhouse uh, who've won the African Champions League nine times. And uh, we've been in a camp uh, now for 10 days and we've got the rest of the week. So we would have been together for 14 days. The only players away were... We had uh, six players away with the Sudan national team who have come out on a high as well. They've just qualified for the African nations by beating South Africa last night, 2-0. I was at the game. And uh, so, you know, the whole country is is on a real up. So if we can um, produce a, a shock result on Saturday, we can continue the feel-good factor. And uh, play, as a players, as I touched on, they've been brilliant. They've, they've bought into me ideas. We've won both were league games that I've managed in and uh, so we've got a, we're three points behind our rivals Hilal with a game in hand and um, so yeah it's I'm really enjoying being on the grass again coaching and I'm enjoying uh, the new environment Well I wish you all the very best with that and it's something I'm sure that many people here in the UK will, will keep an eye on. To, to rewind with you to your, your playing days uh, you, you started at Newcastle United, a boyhood Newcastle United fan, I believe. What was that experience like for you growing up and being a part of a structure um, at the club that you loved before breaking into that first team? Well, it was unbelievably special. I always say it, it's living the dream. Um, and I went to my first game as a Newcastle fan in 1980 as an eight-year-old. Um, obviously, 82 came along and Keegan, the player, arrived and took us to places that we could never imagine. 32,000 in the stadium and, you know, fantastic performances. And then, um, obviously, you know, as I was getting older, because um, I never, ever thought, I'd, you didn't understand really why and how players got to represent Newcastle. You thought that was like a privileged position. So someone like myself never, ever thought that would be possible. But then as I got older, 11, 12, I got invited to the Centre of Excellence, which is like equivalent to an academy there, and uh, trained with them. And then, obviously, when I became captain of England schoolboys, there was many, many clubs after my signature. But as soon as Newcastle were in and they wanted to take us, there was only one place I was going. Um, and men made me first team debut at 17. So, um, and um, just, just had a special time. I mean... When I first broke into the team, I wasn't driving. I hadn't passed my driving test. So I used to get the bus from my home to the city centre and uh, get on the bus with the supporters and walk from the bus station to the ground at St James's. But the difference was they were going onto the terraces to support and I was going into the dressing room to play. So um, that was just, it was just felt normal. It just, they went one way through the uh, turnstile and I went the other way. So. Um, but, but, but an unbelievable time and <clears throat> to top it all off I was probably part of an era um, the best era the club's had since they won the, the Fairs Cup in 1969 and, and a team that you know got so close to winning the Premier League In terms of, before we talk about that era of Newcastle you mentioned being someone who was on the Gallagher to then playing in front of it lots of people even to this day talk about the noise that Newcastle fans make just how crucial is that for the team on the pitch? Because the fans, whether whether the club are winning are on a high, like it was the case when you were there, or now when it's a wee bit more tricky, the fans still make that same passionate noise. 
Listen, it's a, it's a, it's a stadium that uh, over many years is, it'll be full. It's full to the rafters, no, no matter what position the team in, are in the table. The support, the, the, support the players, um, but the demand a lot as well. And uh, the demand that you give everything for the jersey, first and foremost. And if you give that, they'll give you the benefit of the doubt if uh, things haven't gone particularly well in your own technical performance. All the demand is that. Because ultimately, it's a very working class area. And uh, majority of the fans who go there aren't there in hospitality. They're there to be genuine supporters. And they're using their hard-earned cash that they've worked for that week to go to the match. So they just want to be uh, rewarded with that um, and seeing a group of players who are giving everything for the jersey. And in terms of that era uh, under Kevin Keegan in particular, I spoke to, to Les Ferdinand just before Christmas and and he talked about there being a real belief within that team that you could go on and win that title. And obviously you get so close as a team. How do you reflect back in that era? Because Newcastle at that time, I know obviously the nickname is the Entertainers, but just overall, whether they were entertaining or not, they got results and they and, and they were a team that not many people wanted to face, even Manchester United at that time. Yeah, we were challenging all teams. We'd go to Manchester United and Arsenal and Liverpool and Chelsea and take them on, you know. Man City weren't as a force then. Um, you know, it was before <clears throat> their, their money came into their club. So, um yeah, we'd go there and take them all on and we'd get positive results majority of the time. We'd get the odd loss. So, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, the famous four threes at Anfield and stuff. But like you say, we, we were classed as the entertainers, but we, we, we entertained, but we won. Um, I think in five Premier League seasons under Kevin Keegan, I think we lost five home games. So that tells you how good we were. There was there's this lazy journalism to say that we weren't very good defensively and the manager wasn't bothered about defending. Well, I think we averaged about being the third best team in the league with our defensive stats as well. And of course, if it, if we conceded two, we went and we tried to score three. If we conceded three, we tried to score four. So it was just quite simple. So, um, yeah, we, we had the manager was unbelievable in his recruitment process. He very rarely failed in the transfer market. If, with any players, if he did at all. And he was just continually improving the group. And also that players that were there from the start, we had to go with that and improve ourselves with that to stay in touch with those. And we did. And that was the competitive edge the squad had. You could make lots of changes to the group and it never uh, weakened the team. We had a we had a real strong squad. And, uh, you know, with, um, yeah, as you said, we're always challenging. I think we finished six once was the lowest we finished under Keegan and uh, we were disappointed with that. I think we were gutted with that. In fact, that we felt like it had been a poor season. So, yeah, we wanted to be up there and, and uh, challenging the teams to, to be uh, going for the titles. What was Kevin Keegan like as a, as a man-manager? Because there were so many good players within that squad. You think yourself, you think of Ferdinand, Shearer, uh, Ginola. Lee, I could go on and on and on. There's just quality all over the park. How did he manage that 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 core as a group? He was fantastic. He was a psychologist before his time, a sports psychologist. He was a father figure. He was a motivator. He was um, 
you know, his man management skills were terrific. Um, you know, he knew how to get the best out of you. Um, he made he made the group, uh, the togetherness of the group was unbelievable. The best I've ever been around. And that was because of his, the environment he created. Um, and he was a manager Wall wanted to play for. Wall wanted to, to impress him. It was... Uh, you know, and I think that's why we're all determined to, to do well for him. Um, and um, it was a tough day the day he did leave. Uh, but, you know, yeah, he was just a, a very, very inspirational man. And he, he understood why he'd done so well as a player. And he even said it himself, he, he made himself, you know, he, he didn't have the, um, you know, the, that it wasn't God-given talent that he had. He had to work extremely hard and he made himself into the very, very best. He obviously was a Ballon d'Or winner. And uh, so he and he went to Liverpool and was successful. He went to Hamburg, one of the first British players to do that and become very successful there. And you could see why, even when he joined in training with us, his work ethic uh, was unbelievable. He's, he's dem- so the demands he put on us as players was not nothing what he hadn't done before and obviously we were in awe of him I was because I'd seen him in flesh and blood grab a, a football club was that was in the doldrums and, and take it to somewhere that we could only dreamed of and then he come back and done it as a manager so that's quite a unique man One of the players you played with I'm interested to get your insight on is Alan Shearer he broke the world transfer record at the time when he joins Newcastle he came in as a Premier League winner a lot of people now, younger generations, will talk about Harry Kane and his goals for game ratio for England and even for Tottenham. But he's still got a long way to go, in my opinion, to match Alan Shearer. For me, the ultimate striker of the Premier League era. Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. And uh, me and Alan knew each other from age of nine, ten. We played at the famous Walls End Boys Club together. He was in the team above me, a couple of years above. So, you know, I paths had crossed there and uh, obviously he's a Geordie that had to go away first of all to, to set up his career and I think that was a a big thing for him in any way it was, that was one of the major factors I think believe that's made him the player he was he you know he went the opposite side of the country and made a name for himself there and uh, no he came back obviously broke the world record we just obviously that was the summer after we'd uh, lost the, the, the 12 point lead to Manchester United. So the disappointment was then brought the euphoria because which we brought the best striker in the world back home and uh, what that created in the dressing room, what that created on the terraces was just unbelievable, you know? And um it was just a you could you could tell by working with him straight away that, you know, he he, he was just world class and um it wasn't by fluke either. It was like very similar to what I'm saying about Keegan. He worked extremely hard. He didn't, when he done shooting drills or he stayed behind and took penalties, he didn't do it and he didn't try and do things that he wouldn't do in a game. He practised what he'd done on the pitch um, and he got very angry if he ever missed opportunities in training. Um, but not angry where he didn't go for the next chance. That's what he had is in abundance. He was uh, he was always in the danger zone and, you know, scored all kinds of goals, scored, you know, blockbusting shots, free kicks, 
tap-ins. You know, they were they were all just as important because a goal's a goal, and he, he had that belief. And uh, so, yeah, it was like you say, he was at the top of the tree of um, him and Peter Beardsley. Peter Beardsley and Alan were probably the top of the tree of the unbelievable players that we had during that era. And in terms of that era, as we've talked about already, so many people talk about going for the Premier League title, talk about the success in the league, but you also had some pretty special European nights. What was it like playing for Newcastle United in Europe in front of those fans? Because in the league, they're nuts, but on a Tuesday or Wednesday night under the lights, it's even sweeter. Fantastic. Dream come true. Um, UEFA Cup then and then Champions League. It was just phenomenal. And we missed a couple of years as well because... When we first qualified for Europe, when we got in the Premier League a few times, um, the, the the British clubs were still banned from Europe. Um, so we missed out on a couple of campaigns then. And when obviously that got lifted, we got into it. So just phenomenal nights, you know, the, the, the Geordies going all over Europe and supporting us, the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, terrific. And we had some fantastic uh, um, games and... Uh, yeah, it was, listen, it's just to represent the club in any game was a dream come true for me, special, but to represent them in Europe was just, you know, beyond me wildest dreams, really. How do you look back on the first spell at Newcastle towards the end? Because I know it was a bit frustrating for you where you were used to being in the team and then you were in and out and it was a bit stop-start. Did, is that something that, as a footballer, especially when you're a fan of the club, that that frustrates you maybe more than most because it's your club and you want to contribute on the pitch? Yeah, listen, there was like, there was no fallout. What had happened is Kevin had left, Kenny Dagley should come in and I played in Kenny's first three games and we'd done well and I'd scored in every game. Uh, we we um, beat Charlton in an FA Cup replay. Myself and Shira scored and we won 2-1. Uh, we went to Villa and drew 2-2. I think me and Shearer scored again and then sound at Southampton me and Ferdinand scored um, in a 2-2 draw as well so I wasn't only just playing well I was on a consistent run in terms of scoring and uh, feeling good then we had a big cup tie against Forrest the following week but you know as I said I've just mentioned him he was one of the best players if not the best player the club's ever had in Peter Beards and he was coming back from an injury and the manager asked us into his office to say about, you know, he was leaving us out because Pete, I was coming back. And I realised then, you know, um, this was going to be difficult. I was I was competing against world-class players. You know, there was Rob Lee in there. There was David Batty. There was, it was all kinds of players in there competing for different places. And, it, you know, you had to be on top of your game. So this was in the January couple of clubs contacted us. I wasn't prepared to go then, but I had decided in the following summer it was time for us to go because uh, the toughest thing for any footballer, and especially someone who'd been used to playing, you get to that um, that Saturday and you've worked extremely hard Monday to Friday to force your way in the team and you maybe he's not playing. So I decided then that I was, it was going, the summer was going to be the time I was leaving. And Even though the club and Kenny, they wanted us to stay, they offered us a new contract. You know that it wasn't about finance, it wasn't about security. It was just about having something at the end of it of the week, and uh, so I decided to move on. Then, before that, obviously we finished second again in in the Premier League. So um, we um, 
that was a great way, and uh, we um, I, I then decided to move on. And in terms of moving on, of all the places that you could go, you, you swapped Newcastle for Sunderland. How did you handle that at the time? What, what, what was the reaction at the time? Because obviously I'm 25, I'm just thinking about it, even in the here and now, and I imagine it would cause a bit of fuss. How was it back then? It was no problem to me, because I knew I'd go there and give me best. Uh, I was always open that I was a Newcastle fan as, as well as a player. Um, when I went to Sunderland, I still used to go back to St James's Park or even to away games. And obviously went to the two cup finals when I was playing for Sunderland as a fan. So it was never a problem. Um, as long as I, I had to get off to a good start, and I did. Um, you know, it was the, the first season at the Stadium of Light. And uh, the first league game was Manchester City on a Friday night in front of the TV cameras. And uh, we got off to a flyer. We beat them 3-1. Myself, Kevin Phillips and Niall Quinn scored the goals. And uh, it just went from got better and better. And, uh, uh, you know, I was a highly respected member of the team. I was player of the year and uh, I was enjoying my football. I was scoring plenty of goals and making plenty of goals. I had a great relationship on the pitch with Niall and Kevin. Phillips and um, and what a great team, what a great manager. Um, Peter Reid, I, I love playing for him. Paul Bracewell was a big mentor of mine from Newcastle, who was his assistant. So, yeah, we were, it, it was fine. And there was um, good humoured banter when I went back to Newcastle off the fans. Nothing over the top, nothing too serious. And uh, that was all good. So, and the, the Sunderland fans were happy because I was producing performances for them. So, I was my wife was from the northeast. Me, me home was actually closer to Sunderland's training ground than it was Newcastle's. And uh, me, me oldest boy, but who was our only child at the time, had just been born. And then uh, obviously we had our our daughter who came along as well. Then and uh, it it was we didn't have to uproot. So these all factors just made the decision no problem. We, we talked about Alan Shearer and, and his quality earlier. Completely different footballers, so I'm not comparing them like for like, but describe what Kevin Phillips was like because he's another guy who, for whatever reason, was always right place, right time, could score outside the box, could score inside the box. Kevin has similar traits to Alan. The top, the top finishers do. They all have very similar traits. Um, always playing on the shoulder of the last defender, sharp. Very, very sharp in the penalty area, could score all kinds of goals and didn't mind what type of goals he scored. A, a two-yard tap into a 30-yard thunderbolt in the top corner would give them just as much pleasure. Uh, he was great. He was, I mean, I, I, I rattle off the strikers I played behind in my career. And it's 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 unbelievable. I mean, you start off, you've got Mickey Quinn, um, you've got David Kelly, you've got Andy Cole. You've got Les Ferdinand, you've got Peter Beardsley, you've got Fastino Asprilla, you've got Alan Shearer, you've got Kevin Phillips, you've got Niall Quinn, you've got Louis Saha, uh, you've got Michael Owen. Um, you know, you've these are all the strikers that are, are, are played behind in, in, in club football. Um, um, you know, to name, there's probably some I've missed off and apologise to them, but it was just a phenomenal uh, group of players. Um, that we had and, and strikers that I was lucky enough to play behind 
because it made my job quite simple. If I give them quality service, they had the attributes and uh, the knowledge and, and, and the uncoachable, because strikers, to, to, to get in, to have a striker's instinct, it's quite uncoachable actually, because they're always following little bits and pieces in off the keeper, off the post, off the ball. You try and coach on someone, it's not natural. It is quite, they'll try and do it, but when people have that uh, natural instinct, and uh, I was lucky enough that all the strikers I've just rattled off there had that in abundance. So to, when you're playing behind them, you, as long as you can deliver things with a bit of quality, they'll do the, the, the hardest part and put it in the net. Your, your last season at Sunderland, the club are promoted back to the Premier League. You then move on, you move to Fulham and, and move to London. What was it that attracted you to Fulham? Because, again, they're a football club that's always got a knack of attracting good players. You think of Van der Sar was there for a number of years, Berbatov went there as well. They've, they've got a knack for attracting players. Well, because we had a ridiculously ambitious chairman, who Mohamed Al-Fayed, who was prepared to invest millions and millions of pounds, not just in the team, um, but in the infrastructure of the football club. I mean, we would, have, we would have had a super stadium, one of the best in 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 Europe. But because where we were located on the River Thames, I don't know if you've ever been down to Craven Cottage. It's right in the middle of a housing estate. It's the stand, the riverside stand backs onto the Thames. So it makes it difficult to develop that. And then finding a, a new plot and a, a new location in, in the borough was difficult. But our training facility was phenomenal even then. Um, you know, in the squad, like you say, was always getting improved. I never ever thought I'd go and live in London. Whenever I played there, I felt it was a huge place and too big for a northeast lad. But when Paul Bracewell again played a big part, he was manager of Fulham at the time, and uh, I um, took on the challenge. And I'm I'm glad I did because it was one of the best times of my life, both on and off the field. The football was fantastic. Um, the area where I lived, my wife, my children, the, we loved it. And the club was just brilliant. I couldn't have done any more. And I love playing for the supporters there. I love going back. Um, and uh, it's a special place, real special place to me and my family. In terms of uh, your time there, obviously you mentioned uh, Bracewell and, and, the, and the impact that he has in getting you there. You, you play under Jean Tigana. What was that situation like? Because in the year that the club are promoted. There's a lot of attention on him. You go up as champions. It, it must have been a very good season. Saha, who you mentioned earlier, I think he scores 27 league goals, which just shows you how, how prolific he was that year. Well, we went from to a new way of working and Tigana worked very similar to Wenger. And we, we had a British core in the squad. And obviously there's the people talk about you get a foreign manager and you get a British core players who are quite senior in their years and experience and he just got we all together and we were ridiculously fit it was the fittest hour I was always you know my football was based on my fitness my work ethic but this guy took us to a new level in terms of fitness took the group to a new level the training methods you know three times a day and early morning starts and all the different rehab and prehab and um, preparation for games, recovery, 
was phenomenal in the back end of the of the owner, as I said, to get the training ground up to the way he wanted it. I think we were one of the first to have bedrooms at the training ground because this was like the year 2000 and because we used to train so that so much, you know, we could rest and recover there. It was phenomenal and he was a great guy, terrific coach, terrific manager. Um, he felt he'd all done his work during the weeks so on a match day. He was quite quite relaxed. Uh, there wasn't a lot of messages passed on. And then if he had to say something at half time, he would. But no, he, he took us to a new level, him and his staff. And uh, we went, uh, obviously got promoted. And, um, you know, we, 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 we had a couple of good seasons. And then, you know, his relationship with the owner became a bit um, fragmented a little bit. I think it had started off this, that summer when uh, we, John Tigana was our manager and Franco Baresi was our uh, director of football. So Franco and the manager didn't particularly see eye to eye. <laughs> we're two massive legends of the game um, who were great guys with us, the players, but their relationship probably wasn't as strong as or wasn't cemented in the way it should have been. So that caused one or two issues. He moved on and then he big mate who, I, you know, when I got to the club, he'd become big pals, Chris Coleman. He then become my boss. So um, I was captain of the team. And then under Chris, we at the time, we finished in our highest ever Premier League position. We got, we got into Europe. We got into Europe for the, one of the first times in the club's history as well. Um, and we probably would have finished higher. We finished ninth at the time, but we were third in January, coming to the last days of January. And on deadline day, we sold Louis Sahar without a replacement. And Louis had been on fire. He went to Manchester United for, I think, 17 million. You know, Louis had caught their attention in few games. We went to Old Trafford and we beat Man United in their own backyard 3-1. Myself, Janichi uh, Inamoto and Steve Malbronk had got the goals. But Louis' performance was terrific. Edwin van der Sar was magnificent in the goal, who later went to Man United. So... um. Yeah, we, we'd lost our, like we say, you know, main goal scorer, but not just a goal scorer. His overall play was just sensational. And it was tough to replace. So we dropped from third and we still ended up ninth, which was a brilliant turnaround. But who's to say, even if we had just dropped a couple of places, we could have ended up in the top six. So, um, But great times, great times, you know, and was only being allowed to happen by... Uh, an owner who was ready to back the club and who was a fantastic guy. One of the things you, you mentioned earlier was uh, the difficulties that Fulham and many teams in London have had in terms of redeveloping the stadium the way they want it. I know the club are doing that now. For a period of time, you played your home games at Loftus Road. How did you find that as a group of players? Because I imagine it's it could be quite awkward because it's literally, it's not what you're used to at all in many ways. No, it wasn't. And it was... It wasn't so bad for me. I'm, you know, you end up you're a bit of an outsider because you don't know the full ins and outs. But there were the, the biggest rivals. There were only cut with Chelsea. I think was probably about a mile, you know, from Fulham to QPR and Fulham to Chelsea. So the big, big rivals. So what they basically had was they had a change of like pictures and advertisement and, and signage around the ground for when it was our match day. And uh, I know a lot of the fans didn't particularly like that they didn't enjoy that um but we still had some you know made it a little bit of a fortress we had to i mean 
couldn't do anything else. We, we had to get on with our jobs and uh, while Craven Cottage was getting redeveloped, you know. And in terms of film, you've talked about how much you enjoyed it. It was a, a period of time you definitely look back fondly on. When Newcastle United come back and offer you the opportunity to go back there, was that something that just seemed like the, the perfect sort of full circle moment almost? Well, I was out of contract for the first time in my career. Um, I was coming up on my 34th birthday and uh, this, I was in a position that I'd never been in before. Pre-season had just started and uh, I didn't have a club. I was training on my own. And then I got the invitation and I was a bit reluctant at first because they want, asked me to go in and train. They knew that I had um, ideas of going into the coaching side and uh, so they, um, yeah, the, after a couple of days, Graham Souness offered us a position uh, as a player coach. And uh, as I say, the rest history. I, I was more signed initially as an emergency if the first team needed us. And um, ended up playing 30 Premier League games. And so I'd gone full circle. I'd started my career there and I finished it there. And the good thing for me was my me, me children were growing up and they could they could see that their father playing for you know Newcastle United uh, rather than me boring them with all the stories from previous years. You, you mentioned the fact that you were you were coaching at the time as well as playing. Management always high up in your agenda. You go to Huddersfield, which was a good spell, but Birmingham City in particular was a very difficult spell for the club, but the fans still think a lot of you there as well. It, it was a difficult time because I went there with the pretense of building on what Chris Hutton had done and got them in the playoffs. But within a matter of weeks, our owner, Carson Young, had been put under house arrest. His assets were all frozen. So the agenda from bringing players in to kick us on from playoffs to uh, automatic promotion candidates, it just flipped on its head. Now we were fighting for financial survival. Ended up having to sell the best young players I had, which are the players I wanted to build the team around, Jack Butland, Nathan Redmond um, and we were always up against it about bringing players in under certain embargoes uh, wage restrictions um, whenever we sold players I couldn't really replace them by spending money I spent money on, on two players Paul Caddis for a small fee and obviously he repaid that with a famous goal at Bolton to keep us up but also um, I sold a player who would bought pre previous summer uh, for free, completely free on Norwich, a guy called Tom Adiemi. And a year later, we, we got a million pounds for him. And the club gave me 150,000 of that to get a replacement. So I brought David Davis in from Wolves, who proved a, a, a positive player for the club. And um, yeah, it was, it was a tough time. The fans were brilliant. Obviously, they didn't want to see the club where they were. They had high expectations, but I, I knew that the club had brilliant administration staff, British, and they tried to run it as like a Premier League club. The training ground was quality and uh, I loved my time there. Under difficult circumstances, it was tough. But, you know, um, I, I still look on that as a, a, a very, uh, you know, fun period of my career, even though there was some very, very tough days. You mentioned the Paul Caddis goal in that game against Bolton. How did you feel going into that game as a manager and, how do you manage your group of players when there is so much on the line, not just for the fans, but as you know, with relegation worries, it's not just the players that would be affected, there's staff at the club, there's their families. How do you handle that as a manager? 
Um, I was quite relaxed actually, and people can say, "Oh, it's easy to say that now," but I was, and uh, you know, what I'd done in the hotel before the game, before we left for the ground, I didn't do the usual, like, footage of of Bolton's strengths and weaknesses. What I'd got an analyst to do is go around the families of all the players, the wives, the girlfriends, the children, the mums, the dads, the grandparents, the brothers and the sisters, and just put some messages on there. And I didn't purposely, I hadn't watched it until I sat with the players. I didn't want to see it beforehand, but I knew what was coming and the players didn't. They just thought it was the usual pre-match stuff that was going to be on there, you know, the set players for and against and, um, which we did touch on, but just tiny compared to what we'd usually do. And I just put this video on and the room fell silent and there was a lot of emotion in there. Um, not, you know, not afraid and ashamed to say tears in many of our eyes because it was, it was fantastic. Um, you know, the messages from the wives, the girlfriends, the children, the mums, the dads, the brothers, the sisters, the grandparents. And, when it finished, I've never seen a group of men get up and be so determined in their life. And I turned to my staff and I said, is we can, we'll sort ourselves out today. we just got to hope the other result goes our way as well. And uh, even at 2-0, we went 2-0 down. I turned to my staff and I said, no problem, we'll be all right. They must have thought I was crazy. But I just had this in, I feel it. We were playing well. They had had two or three chances, scored from two. My team were playing well. We didn't deserve to be two down. But they came up with the goods and uh, it was brilliant watching, I bet, for the, the neutral 96 minutes equaliser to keep the club in the league. Watching a crazy manager go sprinting down the touchline to 5,000 blue noses behind the goal. They were all dressed as picky blinders. And uh, I said it afterwards, it, it would have been um, Armageddon for the club if it had went down with the financial situation it was in. But thankfully it didn't. And as you say, the one thing I did mention to the players was, yes, it would affect us as a group, the management and the players, and, you know, wouldn't be nice to have. And uh, But the most important people, the office staff, um, the people behind the scenes who most of the time at football clubs are fans of that club, they would have probably lost their jobs, with first of all, with a cost cut, and we, we couldn't do that for them. We, we didn't want that to happen. They were the people that motivated us and the supporters. That they, they were the ones we wanted to get the result for, first and foremost. And thankfully, we did. It was that was a very interesting spell of your managerial career, and another spell you can tell from the accent. I'm based in Scotland. What was it like for you when you went into Kilmarnock at the time that you did in 2016? Because the club were struggling when you went in initially, but you turned it round and and of course <laughs> you go into a playoff final where a lot of Kilmarnock fans. I know, I know, I know. Alan Mahoud's a former Kilmarnock player who I'm quite close with, and I remember he describes those days as being really nerve-wracking as a fan. But you, you couldn't have done it in any more convincing fashion in the end. No, listen. The first leg on the Friday night, we were by far and away the dominant team. We gave a shock and goal away in injury time, switching off from a set player. So we had it. We gave ourselves a little bit of a problem. We talked about it straight away. We got we got that game out of our system straight after the game. We watched the goal straight in the dressing room. There was no time to have, you know, a debrief the next day because we had to focus on the second leg. So we recovered the players. 
Um, and then we were going to train the day before the game. I just sensed a little bit of nervousness amongst the lads. And I, I said to my assistants, Lee McCulloch and Peter Levine, Peter Levin, I said that uh, I didn't think it would be beneficial if, we, if we'd if done uh, a, a, a session the day before the game where the... Um, where we would be talking about the game itself, because I think that would put added pressure on them. And I just said, get get the club minibus. We'll go down the beach. We'll have a walk along the seafront. We'll grab ourselves a square sausage sandwich or a bacon sandwich, and uh, we'll just chill out and chat amongst ourselves and take away the, the thoughts of the game, because they're going to have the pressure the next day of the game itself. And I just wanted them to relax the day before, because the nerve... Nervous energy can be worse than the physical energy and just completely drain you. So I tried my very best to take that away. And whether it worked or not, I don't know. But I've just actually watched the footage back from that game, the, the highlights. And we started like an absolute steam train. Um, and we just blew Falkirk away, really. And uh, ran out convincing winners at four. Could have been more. Uh, um, and uh, that done the job for us. And what it showed us is the, the Kilmarnock fans, the numbers that turned out that day was phenomenal. It was brilliant. And uh, you know, had a bit of a rebuild then. And uh, we've done it. And we, we rebuilt the squad with new signings, but also some good loan signings as well. And uh, got the team into the top six when I, before I left. Um, and in hindsight, shouldn't have left. You know, went back down south thinking the Berry one would be a good one for us to get us back in the spotlight down there to try and get to the championship and then possibly back into the Premier League. Didn't work out with financial reasons after keeping them up in a similar sort of scenario at the Kilmarnock the following season after we invested in the team to try and get them promoted. I then sensed the financial issues that were coming to the fore and decided that was probably best to move on. And so in hindsight, and when I look back of what, you know, once Billy Bowie went in as sole owner of the club, backing and the changes that were made in, in, in the infrastructure of the club and the backing of the managers, wish I'd have stayed because I had a good relationship with Billy, very good. And, um, you know, the club, the club was great. It was brilliant. I loved it. I, you know, I didn't move for any other, for reasons that I thought it could get me back and get me a chance to get into the Premier League in England. It wasn't to be. It was a wrong decision. And, you know, if I could turn back time now, that would be the one thing. There's not many regrets I have, but that is certainly one that if I'd have carried on and the way we were going, you know, if we could have finished the season in the top six, then carried on the rebuild. Um, and, uh, you know, but it wasn't to be. But being... I still look out for the results. It's still an important club. There was the fans were brilliant. We've got the right. They've got the right man in charge now. Team ex teammate of mine, Tommy Wright, good friend of mine. I work with him at Norwich as well, and obviously Paul Stevenson, who was on my staff, who I brought up to Kilmarnock. So I was assistant. So two guys I'm really close with. Couldn't have picked the better manager, in my opinion. Tommy knows the league. He knows how to get out of that position. Then he knows how to rebuild, like he did at St Johnston. So. The last result, brilliant, 4-1 against Motherwell. Hopefully they can get another couple of results now, the splits in order to just make sure the relegation issue isn't there and also they don't even need the playoff. And then they can look to rebuild uh, next season with Tommy's experience of 
trying to push the club up the table and get back to what Steve had achieved, Steve Clark, in a brilliant couple of years. Absolutely, that's what Kilmarnock fans definitely want to hear and one player you worked with who's very topical at the moment in Scottish football you had him for a, a period of time at Kilmarnock was Christopher Ayer who's at Celtic now he's been linked with moves to the Premier League he's been linked with AC Milan over in Italy as well just what was he like to work with and what do, what's your opinion of him now? Well first of all he's being linked with Newcastle so from a selfish point of view I hope we stay up and we can get him because he'll be a brilliant signing for us and when I signed him uh, I was before we got him in the January window I was speaking with Brendan for many many weeks I know Brendan well we, we've known each other since we were 15 playing against each other England school boys versus Northern Ireland school boys so and um so I, I was in discussion with him and, and what Brendan wanted fitted what I wanted as well because Christopher has a centre-half but he can also play midfield and Brendan asked me if we could play him in midfield which I seen as a good position for Christopher at that time just so that he could get used to playing in tight areas so when he went back to playing as a centre-back he was accomplished on the ball which obviously he is and it was became easier for him because he'd been playing his trade in midfield so we'd done that and I... I I played him. I got him alongside Sean Longstaff uh, from Newcastle on loan, and I played the two of them, and they were sensational. For for young players, they were just brilliant. They added a new dynamic to the group. There was a couple of times where I had to drop Christopher back to centre half during games, and we'd lost the centre half through injury or something, just for a minimum amount of time. But you know, majority of the time was playing him in that midfield role and. You know, he was a presence, six foot four, elegant on the ball, could 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 drive through the midfield with it, could see a short pass, could see a long pass. And he had an unbelievable attitude, always wanted to stay behind and do extra training. Um so not surprised to see how successful he's been um at Celtic. And if he does come to England, I hope Newcastle can stay up and we can be one of the clubs that go for him. And if I can try and influence him in any way. <laughs> um, I'll, be, I'll be on the phone I mean I don't want to fall out with the Celtic fans I mean I'm not trying to tap them up but if he has got his eye on moving down south um, you know hopefully he can come to, to Newcastle A few quick fire ones just before I let you go Lee and thanks for being so generous with your time um, what was the favourite kit of yours when you were playing during your career because you played with in some iconic Newcastle kits some of those film kits as well fans still talk about what, what was your favourite kit to play in? Uh, the Newcastle one with the grander collar neck with the Newcastle brown nail on the front. And we had an away kit that was uh, maroon and blue hoops yep. with cream shorts because we had some phenomenal results and performances. We went to White Hart Lane uh, and just blew them away. Um, Sheffield Wednesday, I think that was when everyone first got a glimpse of David Ginola. We went to Bolton before that um, and, and Ginola and Fernand were just un playable um, yeah so yeah iconic strips I think they're quite popular when you're Castle fans as well so yeah they're probably the two that stand out What about the favourite goal that you scored in your career and why? Um, it's it, People ask us this and I haven't really got standout ones obviously it's probably I'd probably say in terms of like Dreams was being my first one but it didn't really matter because it was in a 2-1 defeat at Wolves and I've always been that type of person who if I score and we've lost it doesn't really mean much but um, that should stand out I mean when you think at the time I didn't know but my last goal 
and which was on New Year's Day in the 94th minute in a time, uh, time tease derby against Middlesbrough to get an equaliser. Was that desperate? Shea Given was even up for the corner. So <laughs> he reckoned. He reckons he was behind us to volley it in, but as I said to him, you hadn't got, he didn't have the quality to put it in the net, so it's a good job I got there first. Um, so probably that one, because now I know it was my last ever goal. It was um, an important goal, and it was for the club I love, so that one probably stands out. Last two questions for you, Lee. First one, um, most underrated players you've played with? Um. Most underrated. You're probably going to look at defenders because they don't get a lot of publicity, do they? It's the strikers who get a lot of the publicity um, and the, it's players who do things. I mean, obviously, as I said, Paul Bracewell was a player who not only mentored as I played alongside him and he'd done a lot of good things for his playing as a more defensive player and allowed me in the early days to go and attack. Kevin Ball done a similar role for myself and Alex Ray at Sunderland. He allowed us to to go and break forward. Um, you know, this you, you're probably looking at players. I mean, when I first went to Fulham, Steve Finnan wasn't on the radar. Then obviously burst onto the scene, got his big move to Liverpool and done very well Republic of Ireland. So uh, there's many, many players. Uh, difficult and feel gutted because I've named some there and I've probably left some top ones out as well. So... Um, I, I believe I was a lucky guy. I played in some brilliant teams with some. Well, I played in three brilliant teams at the three clubs I had, successful in different ways, and uh, it was all those teams were littered with great, not just great footballers, great guys as well. And uh, so, yeah, was, I think I'm a, I've been a lucky fella. You mentioned those great teams and, and you've played in so many great teams, but you've also played against so many top teams as well. Last question I've got for you. Who would you say your toughest opponents were over the years? Well, I always say, you know, lucky enough to have played against uh, Zidane and Boban and people like these from Europe, Pep Guardiola and, you know, various different players, um, Luis Figo, but the stand because you play them so regular, I, I pick two because the, the, the combination of the two of them, they just had everything between the two of them and they were phenomenal was Roy Keane and Paul Scholes were a combination that were just breathtaking at times. And I got to meet them socially and the two of them were so down to earth, it was untrue. Um, and I obviously dealt with Roy as well as a man fellow manager when I signed Jordan Rhodes from Ipswich, where I was manager, and he was so humble and down to earth uh, in his when were conversations. So they're two players that had my had and were my toughest opponents. I mean, I've come up against some tough combinations. I had Vieira and Petit at Arsenal. Um, obviously, had Beckham and Giggs was also involved in that midfield at Man United. You had Alonso and Gerrard at Liverpool, Callister at Liverpool. Um, you know, you had some real, real top talent to to, to play against um, in in those eras. So yeah, it was it was tough. Brilliant, Lee. Thank you so much for your time. I wish you every success with your new challenge, and I'll be sure to keep an eye on your results. Thanks, Dan.